0: And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honored to be joined by Don Handrick, who's the resident teacher at Tubten Norbu Ling Buddhist Center in Santa Fe, and who's also a touring teacher who visits centers in North America and Europe on behalf of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, otherwise known as the FPMT. Don, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. It's great having you here. So let's start with um, what are the differences between Tibetan Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism, and, and what distinguishes Tibetan Buddhism in particular?
1: Um, I can't speak to be an expert on all the various traditions of Buddhism, but um, maybe a historical context would be good to Mm. start with because uh, essentially the Buddha lived some 25, 2600 years ago in India. Uh, It was mostly an oral tradition for the centuries following his passing away, and uh, his 45 years of teachings eventually were uh, set down in what's known as the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon was the first... Uh, sort of set of teachings, and those disseminated into Southeast Asia, and that tradition is still alive in what's called the Theravadan tradition. Um, In the meantime, there was also a set of teachings, discourses from the Buddha that were in in the Sanskrit tradition. And the Sanskrit tradition is what mostly took off into the areas of China, Japan, Tibet, uh, Korea, all those kinds of countries in in that area of Asia. And so, in essence, the main distinguishing uh, beginning point is between the Pali canon and the Sanskrit canon because there are differences. There are some common teachings that are at the core of Buddhism, regardless of one's tradition. But then in the Sanskrit tradition, there's much more elaboration on what's known as the Mahayana teachings. Mahayana being the uh, teachings that encompass the entire path to full awakening, to Buddhahood. Um, And so that tradition uh, in Tibet, in particular, the Mahayana teachings have an additional sort of element to them, which is the tantric teachings. Normally, we talk about the general teachings of the Buddha in the category of what we call the sutras, mm-hmm. which is essentially the more general discourses that the Buddha gave over those 45 years. And then the, are the tantric teachings. And tantra in it, in, uh, is only practiced, as far as I know, in the Tibetan tradition and one small sect of Japanese Buddhism. And so in that way, I mean, i do not trying to... Too the horn of Tibetan Buddhism, but it's said to be kind of the most complete corpus of the Buddhist teachings in terms of what it incorporates. Um, obviously, as Buddhism moved through all these various countries, it took on a bit of a local flavor, mm. and uh, there are cultural things that were attached to it on the basis of the people living in those countries when they adopted Buddhism. Uh, so Tibetan Buddhism does have uh, some of that as well that are a bit more you know unique to Tibetan culture. But nonetheless, Tibetan Buddhism, I would say the main distinguishing factors would be those two uh, between the the Pali tradition and the Sanskrit tradition and then even among those that follow the Sanskrit uh, Mahayana tradition, uh, the addition of tantric teachings.
0: So is there a a difference? um, Is there a disagreement in in terms of between the Pali tradition and the Sanskrit tradition of no, this is the real one? Or Mm. is it just understood as this is a different interpretation? You know, of his word.
1: my understanding historically is that, yes, there was a lot of uh, n- n- uh, distinction and um, even a discredita- discreditation of the mm. uh, Mahayana teachings in the Sanskrit corpus by those who followed the Pali canon. You can find… Most of what's in the Pali Canon in the Sanskrit tradition. So it's not that that's being left behind or that there's any disagreement there. It's just whether everything that is in the Sanskrit tradition were the teachings of the Buddha. And if they weren't right. the teachings of the Buddha, then where did they come from? And are they an aberration? Are they you know something that takes uh, things off track uh, compared mm. to what the Buddha taught historically? So again, my impression is from what little I know of Tibetan or a Buddhist history is that uh, there were these disagreements at the beginning. In modern times, I don't see it quite so much in right. terms of uh, people gather, for example, at His Holiness the Dalai Lama's teachings. There will be people of all different uh, Buddhist traditions that will be happy to hear his teachings and uh, yeah. kind of acknowledge that there might be some differences, but they don't tend to discredit them in any way.
0: So. And so there's, it's quite a, a, a broad... Uh, i don't want to say church but quite quite a, <laughs> a, a broad spectrum of um, mm. uh, of thought and writings would that be a fair
1: Definitely, because there's not just the corpus of the what the Buddha taught in those various canons that I mentioned, but then you also have the entire sort of literary tradition that were commentaries on those sutras right. that are an elaboration of what the Buddha taught. And in Tibetan Buddhism in particular, one of the courses we study, for example, is um, what's called tenets, which are the various philosophical tenets that someone could look back on everything that the Buddha taught and categorize it in terms of what particular types of teachings he was teaching at various times in his life right. because the story essentially is is that the Buddha taught to the dispositions of the people who were in the room at the time. Of course, there weren't rooms but right, right. it was you know, wherever, what mountaintop they were on. And so those people um, might have required different teachings than other audiences at other times. And so there is an entire sort of discipline in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of looking back at all of that right. and deciding what are interpretive teachings that the Buddha gave that need to be further explained through deeper investigation mm. and what are the more definitive teachings that the Buddha gave that can be relied upon as they are stated and can be used then in meditation and practice and so on.
0: So, so what are some of those core tenets that, that seem to be the absolutes? In, in your tradition?
1: Well, I would say kind of the, the most um, I mean absolutes for any Buddhist tradition. Yeah. Then I would say probably the primary one is what's known as the Four Noble Truths which is said to be the very first discourse that the Buddha gave. After attaining enlightenment, he spent like 49 days sort of uh, wandering, trying to figure out what to do with this achievement that he had attained and then began to teach. And the first recipients of these teachings were five ascetics that he had practiced with previous to becoming enlightened. And in the Four Noble Truths Sutra is the essence of everything that the Buddha taught. Mm The fundamental teachings are essentially the truth of uh, what the Buddha – the Buddha used the word dukkha. Uh, Dukkha is pretty much the same in Sanskrit or in Pali. Uh, It it is translated frequently as suffering but we could say it's a deeper state of dissatisfaction that the Buddha was saying that if we examine closely, this is what we all find that we are dealing with. The second truth is the truth of the causes of that dukkha. You know Why do we have that state? And the Buddha said they're all internal within our own minds, our own uh, delusions, our own uh, misunderstandings, our mm-hmm. lack of knowledge. And then, of course, all of our patterns of behavior that follow on the basis of that, what we call our karma. The third and the fourth truths speak to the reality that we can have an end to that. And the third truth would be the truth of the cessation of dukkha that there can be an end once and for all to that uh, state, state of dissatisfaction that we are dealing with. And then the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path that leads to that cessation. So I would say at, at uh, in terms of what would be something that anyone who is Buddhist is subscribing to, in essence, would be uh, the, uh, the Four Noble Truths teaching as a core of their belief. The other way that sometimes we talk about how you could determine whether someone is Buddhist or not is whether they adhere to what are called the four seals. And the four seals are sort of an observation that the Buddha had on reality, Mm -hmm. essentially saying, first of all, that all of our conditioned existence is in the nature of dukkha. So it's very similar in that way to the first noble truth. But then the second one, that all of the uh, things that we experience that are conditioned are impermanent, transitory, that we can't right. rely upon any sort of lasting feature to any of those. The third of these seals is that uh, nirvana is peace, that there is this state that we can attain where there is a complete pacification of all of the dukkha, which is, again, very similar to one of the noble truths, the third noble truth. And then the fourth one is that the um, um, all phenomena are selfless and actually missed misstated those. The third one is that all phenomena are selfless and the fourth one, that nirvana is peace. But by selfless, that's a deeper investigation. This gets into the philosophical teachings that the Buddha gave where there can be a lot of disagreement in terms of how that is presented. What does it mean to say that things are selfless? What does it mean to say that that this person that we are so invested in doesn't exist in a particular right. way? And there is a lot of debate upon, you know, about
0: what does that look like. And I, I've got to ask, this idea that of suffering or dissatisfaction um, – Is there anyone in your tradition other than the Buddha who has achieved this Mm. nirvana state? Um, Because talking about an ideal, but he existed Mm. two and a half thousand years ago, 2,600 years ago. Has there been anyone since in your tradition who it said, Mm. oh, they've achieved this too?
1: Yeah, I mean, there there definitely are beings who have attained that state. Uh, in the Mahayana perspective, they often differentiate between two states of sort of a, a cessation of our suffering or our dukkha. One of them is this state we would simply call nirvana, which is when one has attained one's own individual liberation, so mm-hmm. that one is no longer uh, under the force, the control of these factors, of our own delusions and karma, and has attained that state of liberation. But then there is the state in the Mahayana tradition where we look at going beyond one's own nirvana to attain a state of Buddhahood, uh, which is similar to what the Buddha attained himself, or identical to what the Buddha attained himself. So in that way, we could speak about beings who have attained both of those results. Um, The first one is not said to be a final result. One does go on to eventually achieve Buddhahood, according to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But nonetheless, uh, we could say that there is some finality to that in terms of one no longer is caught up in dukkha is no longer taking rebirth through the force of their karma and delusions and experiencing the dissatisfaction of what we call samsara. The the second result of Buddhahood is where one has transcended even uh, some of the subtler imprints that are in the mind and attained a state where one can then aid others in their path, where one attains Buddhahood so that one can stay deeply involved in the world. Right. Um, so, in terms of like how we would identify people who have attained that, people don't go around advertising <laughs> that, you know. So it's mostly on the basis of observation from people who have been around them, their disciples and so on. Mm -hmm. Even someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, as much as whenever he teaches, he says, I'm a simple Buddhist monk. He doesn't really profess to have any great realizations. But in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, he is seen as the 14th Dalai Lama, which is the 14th incarnation of this Buddha of compassion, which is known as Chenrezig in the Tibetan. And so this Buddha of compassion is said to be a, a fully enlightened being who manifests in these various forms to help sentient beings in this world to attain this state. So we could certainly, if I mean, from the perspective of most people involved in Tibetan Buddhism, they would look at the Dalai Lama and say that this is somebody who has attained this even though he will profess otherwise. In the Tibetan tradition, there's also great saints such as Milarepa, who attained enlightenment, it said, in a single lifetime through the use of the uh, practice of Tantra, which is said to be a speedier path by which one can achieve that state even quicker to alleviate the suffering of others. And then there's, uh, in our tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, because there are four main schools of Tibetan Buddhism, there's the great scholar and Saint uh, Lama Tsongkhapa, whose feast day we're actually celebrating in December. But he's an amazing scholar who lived in the late 14th, early 15th century and is said to have attained enlightenment as well. So in terms of you know, those are the focuses generally right. in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition are on those who have attained Buddhahood. Right. In the Pali tradition, they might have more of a focus on those who have attained their own individual liberation, their own state of uh, nirvana. And again, they would probably have many people that they might point to that they would say, are, have attained that state. Even in the time of the Buddha, there were many people, it said, who attained that state, who were able to liberate themselves from this cycle of existence.
0: This is fascinating. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and, and talk about what is it to to reach this state um, while living on earth. So we're gonna take a, a quick break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich and my guest this evening, Don Hendrick, a resident teacher at Tubton Norbu Ling Buddhist Center. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and the Interfaith Leadership Alliance. And my guest this evening is Don Hendrick, a resident teacher at Tubtu Ling Buddhist Center, also a member of the Interfaith <laughs> Leadership Alliance. And you've been talking about uh, achieving Buddhahood. And there's something in it for me that I, I struggle with hearing this, mm-hmm. which is... Um, the 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 human experience is a, an experience that includes suffering, that includes the highs and the lows. If somebody transcends that, what does it mean for them in their humanity? Okay. So when we talk about what does that mean to have attained that state, I
1: guess we have to, again, look at what are the the features of that. So when one has transcended uh, not just cyclic existence but has attained Buddhahood, so one has evolved to that state, we could use that word evolve because in a sense it is a mental evolution. Then, of course, one is no longer bound by all of the factors that cause one to be human. So when we talk about someone like the Dalai Lama, we would say that this is an incarnation of a Buddha. This is a manifestation. Of a Buddha. That is through the force of compassion. It's not driven any longer by what causes those of us who are still in samsara who are taking rebirth as human to take right. rebirth in that way. So, in effect, there is a process that is involved in creating human rebirths in samsara that is different than the process where we would say that there are human rebirths from an enlightened. Mind. An enlightened mind is essentially that. It is uh, kind of got that aspect to It, it is a, a mind that has completely removed all the obstacles, obscurations within it, so that it then has a state of omniscience, so it can know the minds of all other beings. But it's not oh, just right. this this ethereal mind that's off in the distance somewhere. It is embodied in forms to be able to help other beings. So this is where Buddhism does get a little. One of our students up in Taos uses the term woo woo. You know, it does have some <laughs> woo woo aspects to right. it because we aren't talking about about something that we can necessarily just, you know, uh, point to and and have empirical proof of in this world. Mm. Um, We don't know who's a Buddha. You could be a Buddha for all I know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I'm not. (laughs) I always say that to people too, (laughs) (laughs) that I'm not. So, So, but in essence, what we mean by that is somebody who their mind has completely evolved to that degree and they then have the power through their compassion to manifest in ways that will help others. I mean I suppose right. that in the Christian tradition when you look at who Jesus Christ was, you might say that that would be a similar kind of manifestation of the God energy and the Christian tradition that they, they would – again, argue over the Trinity and all the various aspects mm-hmm. of it You know that I didn't quite understand completely when I grew up Catholic but right. nonetheless. So you would see that there's sort of this, this essence that we would call enlightened mind that is appearing in a variety of forms that takes rebirth in the same way in terms of appearing to be born from somebody, growing up, uh, aging, getting ill, dying, right. all of these sorts of features and facets but that – being that enlightened mind isn't experiencing all of that in the nature of suffering. They are experiencing that simply through the force of their compassion manifesting in those ways. It gets sure. to be a little hard to reconcile sometimes, admittedly. But nonetheless, this is how we would say that there's, there can be beings who have transcended that and still be embodied in the world.
0: It's, it's fascinating. I mean, you mentioned Catholic upbringing. So what was it that brought you from <laughs> that to Tibetan Buddhism?
1: Well, uh, I was living in San Francisco and of course in San Francisco there are a lot of influences from Asia and Mm. I did have some exposure to Tibetan art and Tibetan um, culture to some degree. But I suppose that the main thing that happened in my life, uh, the HIV epidemic was really uh, central in terms of in the 80s, uh, all of that transpiring in San Francisco. I was quite involved in a lot of volunteer work Mm -hmm. and then eventually my own partner died in 1992 from AIDS. And so I was searching for answers to what life was All about. And in 1992, there happened to be a book published by this uh, teacher, Sogyal Rinpoche, that was called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. And when somebody asked me what I wanted for Christmas, I said, Oh, that sounds like a good gift. That might, you know, something that may give me some answers in terms of looking at. Uh, what Tibetan Buddhism has to say about life, death, and what it's all about. And I started reading his book, went on retreat with Sogyal Rinpoche in 1993, hmm. and found that this path was really resonating for me. It answered questions that I'd always had in the Catholic tradition that I didn't feel I got satisfactory answers to. Interesting. So. Wow, that's very powerful. That's- Well, I mean I think there are people who come to various faith experiences, not just Buddhism from a place of uh, woundedness, of feeling grief or of loss of some sort and trying to reconcile what that's all about and Mm. find some meaning in life. Prior to that, I'd left the Catholic Church when I was 19. This happened when I was around 34. So I had a lot of years wandering around without any real, you know, spiritual right. anchoring. And so for me, it was really quite amazing to find some, something that spoke to me so clearly and resonated with uh, my own thinking, my own heart. Right.
0: And, and you mentioned a number of times before about rebirth and, and since mm-hmm. you've just mentioned death as well. Um, can you share sure. thoughts about reincarnation or, and what does that mean?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when we talk about rebirth, what we
1: are essentially talking about is – and again, this is within conditioned existence, within those beings who are under the control of these factors, who Mm -hmm. are still experiencing what we call samsara – What we're essentially talking about is that there's a continuum of what we refer to as mind. Mind in Buddhism is this – we have it with us all the time. It's what we are experiencing as our awareness of things that is non-material. So it's not something physical. It's not our brains. Mm -hmm. Um, And so mind has its own continuity. It's a caused phenomenon. It's something that arises from its own conditions which are always in the nature of mind. So when we go back to the beginning of mind in this life, although most of us don't remember – you know prior to some of our early years we very hard time to remember things you know uh, for myself, it's like around four years old, one right. of my first memories of this life. But we would say certainly there was a consciousness that was there that was being exhibited that our parents could attest to, that we were a conscious being. Uh, Buddhism would say that mind didn't even form in the womb, that mind was there at the moment of conception when mind came from a previous existence and united with this form that we currently have. So the process of rebirth is one where mind is propelled to take rebirth again and again through the force of karma primarily. So through the actions that we've created in the past, and in Buddhism, we would say that the actions we engaged in to create a human rebirth, for example, are very virtuous, very uh, wholesome. And by virtue of those actions in the past, we have now been propelled into this human existence. When this human existence ends Mm -hmm. and death occurs, Mm -hmm. and in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's a whole rich uh, set of teachings that come from the tantric tradition about what transpires at death. But essentially, the mind becomes more and more subtle eventually departs from this body and goes through an intermediate state and unites with another corporeal form, which would be, again, dictated by the karma that ripens at the end of that particular life. So in this way, we are under the control of these factors, and we can have a bit more control by trying to encourage through our own behavior – that's why morality is the foundation of a Buddhist path – to plant the karmic seeds that will hopefully lead us to good rebirths like this one, but then to recognize that these good rebirths still are in the nature of some dukkha, of uh, unsatisfactory state, and eventually want to be free of that.
0: But what if the person before me, the corporeal Mm -hmm. form before me, was a really terrible (laughs) human being? That that seems very unfair on the person next in the chain, isn't it? Well, but when we talk about Persons, this is where we do get into
1: this idea I mentioned earlier about what does it mean to say that, that people are selfless, that there isn't a sort of an eternal self. Well, we do see that you're going to have a different personality every existence that you have. Right. But nonetheless, you have a common thread of consciousness that goes through all of these existences. So that common thread of consciousness is – in essence, what unites one rebirth to the next. This is why why you might think, well, even in this life, well, why should I be concerned about what is going to happen in the next life? Right. Because this is my consciousness that goes through these experiences. It is my awareness that will be suffering or happy or whatever the case might be. So in that right. way, you know, there's, there is a relationship between these uh, at that level of conscious awareness that is the thread that runs through all of them. But there's no sort of eternal person that is here, you know, and right. I'm not somebody who will exist forever, obviously. There's a transitory nature to my existence. But moreover, there's um, the idea that is there anything really essentially here that is a person? And that's a whole other investigation as to the deeper way that people do or don't exist.
0: Right. Um, See, you also mentioned earlier about mind sort of coming in at the point of conception. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, does that mean um, in the Buddhist tradition that, that a human being starts at that point? Because obviously there are political ramifications <laughs> and healthcare ramifications yes, in, yes. in current discussions. Is, is that where the Buddhist tradition is?
1: It's, that's my understanding is that, yes, I mean, when we would say that there is a sentient being at the moment of conception, which of course agrees with some of the people on that side of the fence that are – And Buddhism doesn't really take a stand around abortion or these sorts of issues that uh, obviously there's a lot of political ramifications. But um, uh, nonetheless, in terms of that being uh, a sentient being, we would say definitely. And so there are ramifications to that act. Uh, whether one has the choice to have that act, uh, right. you know, to commit that act, that's entirely within the the realm of us all having choice, us so all having a sort of free will, if you if you want to use that term, right, right. to engage in whatever we choose. But there are ramifications from taking the life of a sentient being in that way.
0: And, and staying on the political aspect, I remember 20 years ago, 25 years ago, standing outside the Chinese embassy, uh, big signs, free the Panchen Lama and, and so on. And, and I guess I, I have to ask – What's the future for Tibetan Buddhism, given Mm -hmm. that when the current Dalai Lama passes away, and he started to talk about this quite openly, I think. When he passes away, the Chinese may may try to claim someone else Mm -hmm. as the Dalai Lama who would be different to the person claimed by the Tibetan government in exile. Mm -hmm. So what happens to Tibetan Buddhism then?
1: You know, my own feeling, uh, I really appreciate you asking that question. My own feeling is, is that Tibetan Buddhism has always sort of transcended beyond just a particular figurehead. I mean, the Dalai Lama tradition really started from the Lama Tsongkhapa, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really around even in the early days of Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism started in roughly the 7th century. And so it was around for almost half of its time without somebody playing that role. In modern times, obviously, you know, now that it has left the Tibetan plateau and is disseminated around the world, Mm -hmm. I think there's almost even greater chance that it won't be so contingent and dependent upon someone who's a figurehead, such as the Dalai Lama. Um, his Holiness, like you said, has talked about this frequently in these you know days, recognizing his age and recognizing that things will potentially mm-hmm. get quite messy uh, right. when he leaves this, this world. And so he's made it very clear in terms of what he will and won't do so that there will be, from the outside world, looking at China, they will have confidence that Anybody identified through the Tibetan government, through the the vehicle of of uh, those searching out and finding the reincarnation, that they'll have complete confidence and faith that this is the person who is the actual Dalai Lama. Right. There won't be much credence to anything that's identified by the Chinese, especially, again, given their history around the Panchen Lama, mm. who historically was quite involved in determining the next Dalai Lama. Those were kind of overlapping lifetimes so that you'd always right. have one of them or the other involved in determining who the next reincarnation of the Panchen Lama or the Dalai Lama were. And so um, so essentially, you know, you do have a lot more factors at play nowadays, but Back to what I said earlier. I just don't think that based on what's happened with Tibetan Buddhism and the way that it's been disseminated, if it was on the Tibetan plateau still Mm -hmm. and Mm. fairly isolated, then I don't know that There would be probably different ramifications but I do feel like it's so disseminated now that it will go on, it will carry on and in fact, I would hope that Tibetan Buddhism as it's incorporated into Western countries even begins to take on a bit more of the flavor of America or Europe or whatever so you might have a European Tibetan Buddhism or an American Tibetan Buddhism because this is essentially what happened to the Buddhist teachings as they disseminated many centuries ago so i don't think it's as huge of a factor but nonetheless it will cause a bit of turmoil and you know potentially some confusion.
0: And I know some people um, in the Tibetan Buddhist community many years ago reached out to the Jewish community to say, you're living Mm -hmm. in exile. You've had the concept of exile for so long. Um, You know, what can you teach us? Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult for the community to turn around and say, well, basically there was in the Jewish liturgy a lot of yearning to go back home. Mm -hmm. Um, But now you find (laughs) reformed Jews like myself saying, actually, no, it's good to be out in the world. It's good to spread out. Mm -hmm. Any quick final thoughts on that from your perspective? Yeah, I think I think we could say the same thing. Of course, in Buddhism, we are also trying to
1: practice non-attachment to not be so attached to things. You know, needing to be a particular way. And I think His Holiness has exemplified that. He his heart aches most for the Tibetan people who continue to be uh, subject to such atrocities in China. You know, occupied Tibet. But um, this is his big cause. Is to you know try to protect them. His own desire, sure, he would love to be back in Tibet, but he recognizes that this is probably not a reality in his lifetime, Mm. perhaps not a reality at all.
0: Well, thank you so much. This has been totally fascinating. (laughs) Um, So thank you to Don Hendrick, um, resident teacher at Thuptun Norbu Ling Buddhist Center. And thank you for your really profound answers to this evening's questions. Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me, Rabbi Neil. I appreciate it. Of course. And I hope you return another time, uh, share more of your insights. There's a a lot more questions we can really explore. Good. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.